Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Forgive us once again if you don't mind. We are recording from a distance. We don't have our top tier podcast equipment, so the the audio may not be elite quality, but the content is. What's up, everyone? These are strange times for sure. I hope you are all healthy and well. We're thinking about all you coaches, athletes, and leaders of all kinds out there, mentors of all kinds, and we've got a really cool event to support you. We're going to do our best to support you. We see three common enemies right now. That is lack of hope, uh, increased isolation, and increased sedentary behavior. Those are the three common enemies of quarantine. So what we've done, among other things, among you know providing resources online for people and hosting Zoom meetings and still doing our consults, We've also started an event called Online Powerlifting Nationals, and we're really excited about it. The hope part, we are lighting a light at the end of the tunnel for athletes everywhere. We've got high school, collegiate, and open divisions. So that alone, I mean, I'm pumped about it. I put my name in the, in the mix. I am competing uh, for this championship, and I intend to win. That's just kidding. There's already uh, Some of you listeners are, are well stronger than I am and in my same weight class, so I'm probably not going to win. But the point is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel for me. I'm training for it. I know I have a competition down the road. I'm able to sort of forgive myself uh, and not expect it to be my best competition of all time. But I bet you it'll be my best competition post-quarantine because I've never done this before. Uh, So hope. Uh, Isolation. We're trying to combat isolation by keeping the community of strength connected and together. I'm reaching out to people, I'm talking through uh, interesting new and creative training methods, and really, actually a sort of side benefit of this this for me is getting comfortable with programming uh, with my new and limited set of equipment. I'm recognizing more and more that the barbell is is an amazing tool. As soon as the quarantine lifts, I'm back on the barbell as often as I can. But the barbell is essentially just a, it it, it is what it is. It's a tool. Uh, Gravity didn't go anywhere. You can still pick things up. You can still run and jump and uh, do all the things. You can move with focus on eccentric, uh, the the eccentric portion of the movement. We can do all the things that we would have otherwise done to train and strain muscle fibers, the nervous system, etc. So anyway, connecting with others to make sure that that goes well. And then finally, Obviously, uh, combating sedentary behavior. Even the most motivated people among us are finding themselves stuck to the couch on certain days. So, harder to do that when you've got something really specific to train for. So, we're excited to bring all of that to you. That said, we are equally excited, perhaps, to bring you today's podcast. Chris Morris is the man. I don't know how else to say that. I'm really excited to have him uh, as a friend of the project. He is just a straight up good guy. He's also a super high achiever. So he is currently uh, the director of performance science at Kentucky, uh, the University of Kentucky. He's, he's working, he's training big time SEC athletes that have professional hopes and goals. His focus is the Kentucky Wildcat football program, but he also works with men's and women's basketball and men's and women's soccer. He oversees the staff, he oversees research. I'm telling you, you'll, you'll find out very quickly in the podcast just how exceptional this guy is, but I, I really want to tie one term to his name because he deserves it. It's this idea of fluid periodization. And I had been thinking about it a lot in my own programming and the way that I was programming uh, training for athletes, this concept of fluid periodization. And then I heard a podcast with our friends down at Power Athlete 
It featured Chris, and I learned that term for the first time, fluid periodization. You'll hear pretty quickly what it means, but it essentially is the, the recognition that no two athletes are the same. Okay, obvious enough. But no two athletes are the same on any given day either, even compared to themselves. So myself, for example, I am a different guy if I have uh, been eating well all week and sleeping well all week. I'm a different guy if I'm in quarantine versus not in quarantine. So it's, it's, it's acknowledging this fluid, relative, and context-specific variability within athletes in, a, in, in essentially constructing training methods to achieve specific outcomes with that in mind. It's just, it, you'll see in this conversation, it's just a thoughtful, almost obvious, and absolutely necessary approach to training. So anyway, we'll get right to it. Uh, we sat down over Zoom, had a cup of coffee together. Really, really happy to continue to get to know part of the project and elite coach, Chris Morris. Always grew up, played a lot of sports. So uh, in high school, soccer, football, wrestling, tennis, um, always just kind of staying active, always wanted to be involved in something. Uh, ended up going to the University of Kentucky, played football there. I was actually, so frame-wise, you probably can't see sitting down, so I'm 6'7", 265 pounds. You would think probably tight end, um, maybe like a lineman, but I was actually recruited as a kicker punter. And so that was kind of the funny thing, growing up playing soccer all the time, uh, transitioned to football that way into kicking, and then I kind of had this massive growth spurt in high school and ended up getting big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so went to the University of Kentucky, uh, walked on there as a kicker punter, uh, ended up having three surgeries while I was there. Um, you know, that kind of kickstarted my thought process in is like, you know, you see these athletes that come into the facility and some guys can come in as freshmen and just like get, look at weights and get big. Yeah. And then other guys like are just struggling to kind of uh, gain weight or get strong or they're always chronically hurt. So mm-hmm. from very early on in my experience in college athletics, um, you can start to see the discrepancy between individuals. Now, for me, looking back on it, it's because I, I never really trained in high school, right? I just mm. went from sport to sport to sport to sport, never really developed, never really got in the weight room because there was never really an off season for me. Right. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I, I fear sometimes in high school athletes, especially ones that, you know, stick with one sport. So like a soccer player, they're going to play their fall sport. Then they're going to go into indoor soccer. And then after indoor soccer, they're going to go to straight into spring and then they're going to have summer ball. And this, they never actually develop physically. They're always just playing. Right. Um, but you know, from that, I ended up getting a business, uh, degree and I went to work in sales, realized that that was not my career path. Um, came back to school, um, got my master's in exercise physiology and then ended up getting my PhD, uh, in extra physics, exercise physiology as well. Mm-hmm. Studying, uh, how stress affects the adaptive response. So kind of diving into why do individual athletes adapt differently? Uh, genetics plays a huge role in that 50% of athlete variability comes from genetics alone. Um, we wanted to look for a tool that kind of assessed how athletes were responding from daily training. And so that's how I fell into a mega wave and heart rate variability and direct current potential mm-hmm. it was a way for me to say, okay, an athlete comes in, we do this assessment and I can kind of get an idea of how the athlete has recovered from a previous training session. Um, and the more I went down that rabbit hole, I realized that heart rate variability is reflective of all loads on the athlete. So anything that deviates um, homeostasis in the athlete is mm-hmm. a stress. And the body doesn't differentiate between a stress from the weight room, 
a stress from home life, a stress from not getting enough sleep, a stress from not getting enough food. It just realizes like, hey, we have to tend to this um, homeostatic disturbance and we're going to use these resources uh, in the body. Now, with those resources, you realize that athletes have a limited gas tank to be able to adapt. So if I go and I train, if I do a big training session, um, and then I have to go study for three exams, right? And I have this just a chronic, like sympathetic overdrive, just pumping, trying to get ready for those. Now the body has to decide what are my resources going to go to, right? I have to adapt to this workout, but I also have to study for these exams. And so what we often see is athletes will spend a lot of resources and other things other than training. Uh, so Brian Mann's work, when he looked at stress and injury in college athletics, we found that athletes are three times more likely to get hurt or sick during midterms and finals week. So it kind of yeah. solidifies this fact that, Hey, we can only adapt to so much in our life. Um, and so my kind of my mantra is if I can reduce the stress outside the training facility, then I can increase the stress inside the training facility and have a much better response. Um, mm-hmm. in my own personal life, you know, we, we talked about this, this pandemic and the coronavirus and everything is done. But honestly, I've hit better numbers in the gym uh, during this time that I've been at home and away from the universities because my sleep's on point, my nutrition's on point, external stress is low and, you know, the weights are just flying. So, you know, if we can control our own stress uh, in our life, then you're going to have a much better outcome in your weight room. But I, that's so... <clears throat> Dude, I love that approach. It, 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 and I love the way that you talk about it. I love the Brian Mann stat. It's such an interesting idea. Who would, who would, I love the people who are looking at that correlation, midterms, yeah. finals, and injury rate. You know, you don't think of that. <clears throat> I'm not going to go into theory as to why I think that is, but I really do hope people are paying attention and listening to that. And uh, we actually, we've started to talk about in our place, <clears throat> we talk about stress uh, differently. We, we try to, name it in exactly in the way that you've named it people have turned stress into a four-letter word yep it's not sitting sitting in terrible traffic that's not like that's not the only sort of stress we're talking about we and what sometimes we will do uh to have young people high school college athletes start to reframe it is uh, we say a handful of things one is the obvious which you've alluded to is that um without stress we're not here as a species it's good stress is good Right. If yep. you don't, if you don't stress, you can't grow. You can't improve. There is no training without stress, et cetera, et cetera. We also start to look at things like uh, differentiate stressors, uh, like birthday cake is stress. Like if you really want to kind of extend the term, you know, uh, yeah. people are like, wait, that doesn't sound stressful because that's the way we sort of term it. Okay, yeah. fine. But if you have two two slices of cake and uh, a bunch of ice cream, you know, this is throwing off your system in a certain way that you'll have to adapt to. Now. There might be, if you've built a resilient system, there might be little to no repercussion to that necessarily, but uh, you're not maybe a, a difficult, you know, in the long term. But um, but that would be a stress in the way that it throws off homeostasis, like you explained. Yeah, and it's so individual because, like, yeah, some people can get really pissed off in traffic. Other people don't. Uh, totally some right. Athletes. Um, high achievers are going to really stress about academics, and maybe some other athletes aren't. So, you know, stresses are so uh, individual about and, and what kind of gets going. And so it's more about like, you know, how do you handle when those things? So I'm a big fan of meditation, right? Um, because I feel like with meditation, we, everybody will raise their threshold for what any non-specific stress will kind of trigger those systems, right? Like when I feel myself getting stressed, it's like, oh, I feel stressed, breathe, everything's okay. Mm-hmm. 
you, you're right. It's um, <clears throat> there's a difference. There's a difference between stress management and stress avoidance. And I don't, you know, and and I and I hope we can empower people. And I think that perhaps we have in our workshops to uh, to recognize that and be willing to. It, it takes a lot of. It, it takes a lot of intentionality because like you said, the thresholds for where stress becomes too much stress, um, it's different for everybody, but I, but I do hope people recognize that if you lean into it just a little bit, uh, you can move the threshold up. If you do very deliberate practices like something meditative, a, a breathing practice, or uh, um, you can change the threshold. And that's yep. probably a tool that we're going to want to give everybody. Because like you said, I think when it comes to the non-obvious sort of subtle, slow simmering, hot stressors across the course of a lifetime, things like social media, the phone, you know, these constant attention grabs, uh, yeah. that's going to, that's going to ring the bell at a very low level. Uh, we've got to be able to manage that. I've actually said, and when we think about this, I, I think um, we work closely with a lot of physical education departments and the way sex ed is a, a unit in, in health classes. I'm, right. I'm convinced that, that tech ed like literally how to engage, analyze, decide what you're the appro what's appropriate for you, tech ed. Uh, I think that's going to have to continually be part of the curriculum. And, and there's a lot of metaphors there. Like you wouldn't want, you don't, you can't preach abstinence education in tech because it's here. Yep. We've got to yep. be able to deal with it. So it's about identifying uh, probably individualized strategies based on the yeah. outcomes that you want. Yeah. And tech's so hard because tech evolves much quicker than our ability to understand its effects. And yep. so like right now we're just starting to see the effect of children with a lot of screen time and how that affects personality and how they grow up and develop and how social media affects uh, psychological issues. I, I, you know, three or four years ago, I'd kind of talked about this and my fear was, you know, the same place that athletes go to get praise and gratitude and get those good hormones released are the same places they can get broken down and torn down by fans, mm -hmm. you know, criticizing. Because, oh, yeah. you know, 30 years ago, you had a bad game, it's in the paper, the paper gets thrown away, everyone forgets about it. Right. But now on social media, they just relive it and relive it and retweet it. And it's, it's common. And it's just, it's a brutal psychological environment for our, for our athletes. It really is. You remember, um, what was it? It might have been this. Yeah, I think it was early this year, late 2019, when David Stern um, made those comments about NBA guys being under a crazy amount of stress like that. And people were like, it was Charles Barkley, who is probably a very great guy. I, I Not to talk badly about uh, Charles Barkley, but um, was like, well, what do they have to be upset about? They're staying in nice hotels and stuff like that. I'm not sure people recognize uh, what, like, what some of these folks are going through. Uh, yeah. because you're right there, there's the very there's the it, we haven't even gotten into what, how the brain is like subtly rewiring with this constant barrage of, of attention stock that is the phone it, even if we just go on a basic sort of recognizable human principle that um, you, you're just going to face a lot more critique you're going to have to put a lot of stuff out that you're going to have to renegotiate it's not just human to human interaction what does the internet like what does the market at large like which yep. which will include very critical people and some that I don't like but you're you're navigating this nonstop um, that's hard on people i i wonder sometimes i'm from chicago i'm a huge michael jordan fan he's the best that ever played but yeah. if michael jordan had a twitter account we would think of you know back when he played we'd think about him a lot differently is my assumption exactly yeah he would yeah Absolutely. Because now when you put stuff on Twitter, you're actually opening up everything to everybody. And somebody, 
inevitably you're going to offend or there's going to be some disagreement among a population of people that it's going to happen. It's natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just, like I said, I don't know. I don't know how you get ahead of it. We try to do our best with bringing in uh, teams of people. Our, our media department does a great job at UK of bringing in uh, people to educate our athletes. Like, hey, this is what your brand looks like on social media when you mm-hmm. post these things. And this is oh, how cool. you yep. deal with people that are attacking you. And this is your message. And this is your mantra. And this is your – and so we're, we're trying our best. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a drug for some of these kids. And yeah, it's, yeah. we're more addicted than others. Um, and you know, their lifestyle when they went, you know, how they were brought up, you know, maybe didn't have a, a lot of recognition and now they come to the university and now they have a name and they have a profile and people are following them. Um, and, and they constantly go to that source to get admiration. So, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how we, uh, evolve from here and, and what social mm-hmm. media does and how we handle it. But absolutely. You're starting to see, I think some of the effects uh, in the weight room as well, because it's a stress that we never intended to have. Yeah, that's exactly right. So tell, what are some of your strategies on navigating that space? So like you use tech in the weight room. Um, so, so what sort of, yeah, how do you balance that? So there's a lot of different methods. I think now, um, if, if we just remove social media and stress out of the picture and we just look at genetic variability, we know that, um, there's going to be times when an athlete comes in the facility that they're re- we call it readiness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the readiness to train is going to be low or it's going to be high. And I think as strength coaches uh, in general, we program for the average, which means we're not going to program too aggressively uh, and we're not going to program light enough. We're, we're trying to find that kind of middle balance. And so mm-hmm. the idea is to try to find ways to quantify, all right, let's, let's bring in this athlete and see, all right, what is their readiness to adapt? Uh, and so that's when we look at autonomic nervous system function, which is heart rate variability or the direct, like what's the status of the CNS. Um, in those cases, when all those lights check green, I feel like when they get into the weight room and if it says four working sets, how about we do five? Mm-hmm. How about we do six? And then when you can combine that with some auto regulatory methods, like some of Brian Mann's work with velocity based training, let's just go until the velocity drops off. You know, I mm-hmm. think. But on the flip side of that is when an athlete is not ready, let's just say they did have a stressful day the day before, they did have exams or they didn't get enough sleep, or there's not enough food, something in the system's off. We have to have systems that kind of recognize that when they get in the weight room because otherwise you're adding a stress to a stress system and you're going to have right. a negative effect. So it's, it's kind of like this push and pull effect, right? Um, instead of just always kind of programming for the averages, now we're trying to program for the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what happens is you'll, you'll capture some of those genetically gifted athletes and be able to push them a little bit more than what they could have been doing. Uh, we're kind of pulling them back to the average uh, right. versus someone that's maybe on the low end of the genetic spectrum. Now we're kind of accommodating for them and kind of giving that minimally effective dose to kind of help push them along in a safe manner. So there's tons of methods out there and you don't have to have a lot of tech to do it. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. auto methods like back from I think 1918 was the first fluid model right, where they use auto, um, auto regulatory progressive exercise, right? They let the third set determine what they're going to do on their fourth set, and on their fourth set determine what they're going to do the next week. So if I come in and I'm feeling it that day, I'm going to push the envelope. I'm going to put some weight on the bar, and we're going to move it and see what happens. Yeah. And that establishes my new 1RM for the next week. And it's just, just kind of like model where we're going to have dips and valleys. Nothing in training is linear. Right. right. So you have to kind of find methods for, all right, athletes in a valley right now, let's pull back a little bit on our volume and intensity and the next mm-hmm. week where they're at again. And if all the systems are green, we're going to push the envelope. So 
but it kind of helps make sure that we're still moving, you know, in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I, fluid periodization is what you call that, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and I love it because it's like, uh, it, it battles this concept that there's one way to be right in, 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 in this realm. And that's such an obvious untruth. It, it just, it can't be true. Like we talked about for nutrition, like right. what's going to be effective for you today at six, seven, two, sixty, I'm, I'm six, two, two thirty, And I didn't sleep that well last night. We're going to have different days. Right. So, yeah. so how could we possibly imagine that, uh, this, this, that we could cut and paste a program and it would be right. Right. For a lot of people, it comes down like when you introduce complexity, right? Cause it, you know, when you've got a hundred guys, uh, coming into your weight room and you have to individual, like that's, that's a massive complex system. Yep. Um, you just have to find ways to kind of make complexity a lot more simple and that's systems based. And so we kind of leverage some of the tools and technology to help kind of expedite that stuff. Um, but even if you didn't have it, um, like I said, there's, there's a ton of methods that are cheap, easy, uh, that any strength coach could use, uh, mm -hmm. like ARPE, simple. Uh, I think the easiest one out of all of them is using reps in reserve, right? We're not going to yes. based off of one rep maxes. We're just going to say, hey, we want to hit a target of six reps, and we're going to load the bar until you get there, right? And plus yeah. or minus one. And if you get eight when we were supposed to get six, we're going to bump up the weight on our next working set. I think yeah. that's so easy, right? It it's is. so intuitive. Just as long as you have a way to kind of record it, week to yep. week what you did and so like you know power athlete is one of my favorite ways that they do it they give reps uh and train heroic is that software solution that helps us track to say hey what did i do last week all right let's mm -hmm. see what i do this week and then we'll keep pushing the bar forward it's so good we we call it the appropriate load theory in our weight room but i've actually taken fluid periodization into our training staff stuff uh but essentially what you said like was it the appropriate load if we were aiming at a set of eight and you had four and you could have done it 15 times based on what we're trying to do, that wasn't the appropriate load. Let's, let's adjust right. and move forward. We had a, we have a comment here, um, which is a good one. One that we talk about all the time. The question from Robert was, so you see an improvement in self-awareness in the athletes with this question mark. And I think, you know, I, I won't speak for you, but I would say self-awareness, uh, not only yes, uh, but, but also isn't self-awareness well, isn't that a wonderful skill or tool we'd want, we'd want to be giving these young people? Five more pounds in the squat. Excellent. Self-awareness, like elite. Yeah. And that's, and that's the big thing is like when you give instant feedback to the athlete, because traditionally, like even when I was, when I was playing, it was, Hey, we'd come in in January, we do our one rep max test. And that served as our kind of um, percentage base. And we wouldn't test again until April. And mm -hmm. so like, you know, when you're doing an undulated periodization program, like, yeah, we're hitting our numbers and some days it felt good. Some days it didn't. Um, we never knew if we were actually improving until we got to April. Right. And when you have a method on week to week, and I think this generation is definitely built on some instant gratification. What am I doing now? Did I get better today? Mm -hmm. And I think when you're self-aware to say, Hey, last week I did 245, and this week I did 255 and my new estimated one RM just went up by two and a half pounds. I see progress. Yep. And it creates buy-in. It's like, all right, eating right, sleeping right, this is actually helping. Uh, yep. Versus if you don't test again until April, then like, what am I, am I, am I getting better? What am I doing? You know? That's so, right. Yeah. Well, it, it, that's right. And, 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 um, and I think if, if people like you and hopefully, if, if coaches are doing it right, then not only would you see that incremental growth and be empowered by it and, and get some gratification, but uh, hopefully we could onboard a, a way of thinking that when it doesn't go up week to week, uh, it, it's more, we try to go, you mentioned meditation. 
like we we are we are we try to be mindful in everything that we do which includes just going back to the core of mindfulness assessment without judgment so we're looking closely but we're not judging it so if you didn't go up this week maybe you took a step back this week you're not bad nothing it's everything's okay but what a what a great opportunity to reflect on what we've been up to over the past two weeks and if we can get to that kind of that sort of uh self-awareness we call it practical mindfulness yeah kind of our term for it like I said, it's uh, all right. I didn't improve. I didn't improve this week. What did I do the last four to five days that may have affected that? And let's just see if I can rectify it. Sure. Um, maybe I didn't get enough sleep this week. Maybe my food wasn't dialed in. But it, it does force the athlete to think. All right. Last week I did great. This week I didn't. What, mm-hmm. What's happened? What's changed in between? I think for a lot of the athletes, they have to understand, like you have to educate on the front end. Training's not linear. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have a shovel. You're going to have a spoon, whatever analogy you want to use. Right, right, right. Know that every day that you come in there, we're going to give max effort. And if you, you fall a little bit short of what you thought, not a big deal because, hey, look where you started and look where you're at right now. We're still ahead of where you were when you came in, right? It's just right. It's kind of you're in a trough. And let's just think this next week, get some extra sleep. Dial in your nutrition. Let's figure out where other areas of stress in your life that we can help with. And then let's see what you're at next week. So live to train another day. That's it, man. And if you can take that mindset and start to apply it to the world around you, even outside of training, that's why we are, that's why we had at the, at the Gaddafi project, myself especially, but at the Gaddafi project, we're so interested more and more in strength and conditioning. We, I mean, we're in the football world, we're in baseball and lacrosse. We're all over sports as a platform for education. But man, the weight room, when, when you start to approach things like this, that to me is the cleanest, most direct place to onboard, quote, life lessons yep. if you're doing intentionally and doing it well, if that's the outcome that you want. Because what you just said, if you applied that mindset to your work, like to your business, like your job, if you applied it in, uh, it, it's a little more complicated because there's a heavier dose of emotion, but like to your relationship. You know, yep. like, let me just like, why are, why did we get in a fight? Why do we get in arguments uh, more regularly at uh, 1130 PM? than that, you know, you know, what are the components? What's going on here? What, what yeah. is that? I never thought of that. We need to train her up for uh, relationship arguments. You need to track what time we get in arguments and figure out how to fix that. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling couldn't you imagine that, that you could line these things up? I, I think there is, I think about this all the time. In fact, when I talk to uh, parent groups sometimes, um, and you will try to design uh, situations. We go into places where we talk to uh, both, you know, all tiers. So athlete, coaches, and parent slash community, you know. Um, and what we will often find is like, one way to sort of come back, come back to a state of self-awareness is, uh, have you ever been like really short or even mean unintentionally to someone that you loved? Like, you know, has that happened? Like, uh, and, and then you get people to reflect on a time. Okay, let, let, let's go back to a time. Okay, was it, uh, I, I wonder, was it seven o'clock at night before dinner after a long day of school? You know what I mean? And start to sort of coax these narratives yeah. out of people. And then if you look at it from like the, you're a doctor, if you look at it from like a scientific perspective, it's like, okay, well, it, it would be almost obvious that after an incredibly long day, maybe mostly sedentary, like, and, and maybe you go to a practice, maybe you haven't had dinner yet, maybe you didn't sleep super well the night before, that you, you all of a sudden, your emotion regulation has changed. The way that you interact with people has changed. And that's actually one thing, just to get more about what we do, I don't want to take 
the mic fully, but when we go into a place, one of the first things we do is we evaluate what we call bedrock, the physiological bedrock. You have, do we have a population of people who are uh, underrested, malnourished, sedentary? If so, let's, start, let's address that first before we start to onboard communication strategies, relationships, you know, things like that. Absolutely. That's a great strategy. You can't overload uh, all at once and take care of those basic needs. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. It, it's interesting. You can apply that kind of data analytical approach. Like you're looking for uh, commonalities, right? Like how we do injury surveillance. Where are injuries happening? Where are they most likely to happen? What type are they? What are we doing before that? Oh, we did a bunch of high speed running and it was very condensed. Or that might lead to more injuries. So yeah, the association between, like you said, all right, we're more likely to get into an argument at 7 p.m. when I get home from a long day of work on our longest practice day when I haven't eaten. All right, what strategies can we put, what interventions can we put in place to help rectify that or reduce the, the incidence of arguments? But you're absolutely, you could apply that strategy to anything in life. Uh, seriously. And, yeah. and, and it, all it takes is a state of um, judgment-free assessment, and, and we just could say close looking. And then yeah. we have this, uh, feel free to borrow this or... We can talk more about it, but our mantra is, does your behavior match your goal? Interesting. And, um, yeah. and, and it takes, uh, we, we coined it really intentionally. It's, one is an ownership piece. It's your behavior. It's yeah. the judgment-free recognition that, yeah, this is something that I'm doing. I'm in control of this and in my behavior. Not does your situation, not do the other cars in traffic, but does my behavior in this moment match my goal? And the other really important part there is uh, the identification of a goal. Yeah. I think oftentimes uh, we just sort of move passively through the world uh, looking for likes in one form or other without hitting the big three that we refer to, which are uh, self-awareness, purpose, and self-management. If you can't tell me what you want, uh, we can't evaluate whether or not what you're doing is going to map onto that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And, Coach, and Coach Stoops says the same things to our players. It's, uh, are you willing to make the necessary changes to your behavior in order to become elite? So everybody that comes in our building wants Fair to get to the NFL, but are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to go to bed at a decent hour? Are you willing to eat? Are you willing to train? Are you willing to listen to your coaches? Like behavioral changes that you need to make in your life to get from, you know, a freshman uh, to that NFL level. So absolutely. I got, I got a couple questions for you, but you just reminded me of a big one. Uh, yeah. So you remember, um, remember the baddest I want to breathe video? You remember that one? Mm -hmm. which is which uh i've talked about it before i've written about it before actually it, it gets under my skin in a way that uh it, when i first came across it i was like super motivated by it i thought it was great and yeah. if anyone hasn't looked it up you gotta look it up and i actually i think i believe in him to a degree i think he the the, the speaker really wants to do well and has a powerful message he's trying to empower people so i don't mean to talk badly about it but there's some some key messaging in there that is that was a little disturbing to me and it mm -hmm. was like, you got to be, you got to be willing to go on three hours of sleep. You, you know what I mean? Like you, you want to be successful, but you're, but, but you won't even give up sleep is this sort of, uh, right. Terrible, uh, and uninformed narrative. No offense. I just think it's so true. And, and, but the way that you're talking about it, uh, are you willing to put Netflix away? Are you willing to put your phone down and prioritize your rest so that you can, um, get to an elite level? That's an interesting idea. You know, I don't think people realize how tightly uh, intertwined discipline and wellness are. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think part of it is because the narrative, you know, in the United States, it's very capitalistic. It's, it's a grinding type environment. Work, 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 and you're going to be successful. Are you willing to go on three hours of sleep to get ready for that board meeting and you're ready to do this? And so it's, it's kind of been the, 
the mindset I think of Americans and just now we're starting to see like, you know what, maybe if I slept longer, I'd have a more productive day at work. Cause if I'm going on three hours of sleep, my work, you know, I might be working at 40% efficiency versus if I got eight hours of sleep. So we're starting to now just see the really important aspects of what sleep does for us. And we're starting to see the important aspects of what potentially meditation is starting to kind of make its mm -hmm. way in American culture. Um, but you're right. I think it's just a matter. And, and especially for some of our football coaches, it's, you know, when I tell them like, Hey, athletes are three times more likely to get sick during midterms and finals. Maybe we need to think load adjustments. They're like, no, we need to ground through it. They need to be tough. There's a mental toughness. Like, because when we played and when they played, that was how that they did it. Everyone was a dog, no you know, we were grinders, but everybody was doing it. So it's, right. you know, the competitive advantage of not doing it, Right. A different way, you know, so I think a lot of it's a fear is like, all right, well, are, do we coddle them if we tell them, like, if we move, you know, our training session from 6 a.m. to maybe 8 to get more, that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. Trying, we're starting to recognize the importance of it. It's just trying to let go of those kind of like old school mentalities uh, that have been instilled in, in an American culture for a long time. You're right, man. Okay. So what, what's your vision of that? Because I think, um, there is some validity to that, but it, but only in certain cases. So it's like, I think you do need a mentally tough football team. I think you need mentally tough athletes and probably people if they're going to achieve at a high level. Yeah. But, uh, but is, but is uh, chronic sleep deprivation the way to make them mentally tough? And again, we, we're not cutting and pasting our values on people, but it is a, it, it's, it's a question that people should be willing to wrestle with. So yeah. if you say you, you're the football coach, say, uh, or, or I, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to name UK in any particular way. But if you were giving advice to a football coach, yeah, if you're giving advice to a football coach, um, where do you think that balance lies? Yeah, and so like I said, I think there's time, there's periods of time where we do developmental toughness. We need to put them in situations that are tough. So that that could be your classic fourth quarter drills or your mat drills that we're putting them. We're not giving them, you know, the we're not developing energy systems. We're not really developing physically optimally, but we're putting them in situations that are going to push them beyond their limit. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that we do get in the fourth quarter, that environment where we recognize that and it's not, we don't activate those stress like activation. Like we don't get freaked out. We've been there before right. we can handle this. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the mantra of like the Navy SEALs, right? You know, they put them through these extreme environments. So when they get into a mission, they're calm, they're cool. They've been there before. They've been through a lot worse. And right. it doesn't affect them. So that that's one way of developing mental toughness. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times it's, you know, we work with some companies like uh, Horizon Performance who does uh, a lot of work with special forces and trying to put people in environments and then noting behavior, right? When we put you in a, in a tough situation, right, a, a mat drill, are you going to be the one that goes to the back of the line? Are you going to be the one that, you know, cuts short of the line? And so we try to tag behaviors to say, and then give feedback to the athlete. Hey, this is where you fall short of our core values. Right. Um, and I think given that feedback to the athlete to let them know like, Hey, your behavior isn't matching uh, our core values helps build some of that mental toughness. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's hard, right? We had to realize that when we do those type of that training, it's going to come at a big physiological cost and we can't, sacrifice the recovery piece of it because then we're going to put them at risk the next day for another training session. Right. So we have to dose mental toughness in, in specific time that has to be periodized. Right. Like today we're throwing out, we're throwing out the book on optimal physical development and it's Friday. You know what? They got two days to recover. 
Let's get after it. Let's put them yeah. in some situations that are going to make them feel uncomfortable. But at the end of it, they're going to get through it. And then we're going to give them feedback on how they handled that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably, you know, what I would consider. Because I think a lot of times we got into this high performance mindset where, oh, we shouldn't do four quarter drills anymore because it's not optimal for. But then we totally negated the fact that there's some good things that come from that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the coaches like doing that because they want to see who is mentally tough. Who's going to be the first person in that line. Who's like, it, it gives them a barometer of who are the guys that we can count on when we get things get tough. I, I can't tell you like just how much you're speaking my language right now. Uh, because they're, they're, I'm, I'm just so what folks need to recognize, I think is that this, uh, to, to accomplish elite results within a population, you need to do sort of, you need to have a deep toolbox and, and a sort of fine-tuned filter to select the tool based on the context and the kid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you need to start building a toolbox within your po- athletic population as well. And right. it, I, I'm with you. It's not just training like Olympic sprinters. And it, you know, it's not just that it could be a component of that, but it's not just that because uh, fourth and one in the fourth quarter in the first game when everyone's freaking dog tired, I think you'd like to know who you can hand the ball off to just right. from a psychological perspective. That is also super valuable, and that won't show up in the training numbers probably. Yeah. So, so how do you do all of this? How do you accomplish all of this um, without uh, violating principle number one, which is you know put students in like harm's way? Yeah. I, I don't think there's another way. Build your own toolbox, assess regularly, build the toolbox uh, in your athlete population. That's it's so interesting. Man. The, uh, okay, so you mentioned, by the way, you mentioned the, we were talking about the uh, sleep video, Bad As I Want to Breathe. I think uh, you, you nailed a, a really specific idea there, and it reminds me there's so many training parallels or, or potential metaphors. Uh, it's almost like a volume thing. Do you want to work more or do you want to work better? You know, you talked about efficiency. Um, we talk about that a lot when we train uh, field athletes who aren't football. So like a lacrosse player, you don't want to, we want you fast late is what we yeah. talk to say to the lacrosse guys and, and, and girls. We don't, we don't care if you can run a, a marathon, you know, we want you fast late. Fitness is a component of this. Absolutely. But, but uh, that's what we want. So uh, again, there's a balance, but the volume versus intensity is, is a yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and like I said, it's um, with athletes, it's kind of getting them to understand what are the demands of your sport, right? What do you need yeah. to be, what are you required to do and what's optimal? Uh, we're fortunate that we have a lot of technology, GPS technology to help us profile those sports. So mm-hmm. we know exactly how much high speed distance, how many accelerations, how many times they change direction. Um, by profiling the game with some of these advanced technologies, then we can go back and profile the athlete to say, hey, Let's do these assessments of cardiovascular endurance, uh, speed, acceleration, power, and then we can identify the limiting factors in the athletes and say, hey, you're great from a cardiovascular standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really need to dial in your, your speed and acceleration component, which might, that, that goes back to that individualizing training methods um, and, and determining what does the athlete truly need because otherwise we blanket trainer athletes, right? All right. right. We're going to go through this block and we're going to develop this specific quality, but you know, this athlete doesn't need that. Mm-hmm. Right? They're already they're already sufficient enough to handle that, but they're really deficient here, and they're not going to get this training block until you know later on, and it's going to be very condensed. And you know, I think we can get to a better spot with our athletes on the assessment front, and we can bucket our athletes based. So if we have four global needs of an athlete in this sport, 
we can say, all right, all my people that need cardiovascular endurance are probably going to mm. go through this GPP block. But others that are aerobically fit and have a good base level of strength, maybe we push them more to that power ballistic type training to help address some of their deficiencies. Um, and we can be smart as strength coaches uh, to bucket, like as long as you have a system, right? I think when you introduce right. complexity, we, we throw up barriers, but as long as you have a system and you have assessment and you have almost like a decision tree, athletes are below this threshold for this, all right, their training needs to be focused here for mm -hmm. right now. Then we reassess and it's almost like they graduate levels. Um, but yeah, so. I, I think that's, and, and it's work. <clears throat> so for people who are saying, well, I just want to write like five by five on the board, no, uh, no judgment, but I do highly endorse the idea that you get comfortable with this sort of approach. Yeah. And, and I would say to coaches who are, uh, who are nervous about taking the, the next step in their coaching evolution, I would say just like training, your max threshold will grow. You'll evolve. You know, if you, if you start doing this just a little bit, it's like running a mile. The next time you do it, a little bit higher and for too long, you can get granular and, and really finely tuned like you all are, are doing. Um, what, what do you think for someone, what's the minimum cost of entry for something like this? Like, do you recommend... Omega Wave, if so, what's the price point? Like, what's one of the easiest ways for people to get on board with this? Yeah, so Omega Wave is not cheap, but it's definitely not the most expensive of all of our performance technologies. Uh, our GPS technologies like Catapult uh, are probably kind of on the top end of that. I mean, honestly, when, when we start talking about assessment, you can start as simple as a wellness questionnaire and then using coach's intuition, right? So if you, you can get on Google Docs, and send out a Google Doc um, or Google survey to your athletes, have them fill it in, and then all that information comes to you. So you know kind of, you have a barometer on the athlete before they come in the door. It's like, all right, athlete is really sore today. Um, are wellness questionnaires enough for me to like go into a fluid model and start making training changes immediately? No, what I would do then is like, all right, these athletes are sore, these athletes are not optimal, let's see how they move the bar. All right, uh -huh. use your eye to see, all right, you know, you're sore, you're not moving the bar very well today. Um, your first working set, you know, you, you gave that an RP of an, an eight when it should have been a six or a five. Mm -hmm. And then you start to build in your in your head, all right, there's, there's probably not optimal systems here. That stuff you can do for free. Uh, that's just mm -hmm. getting more information from your athlete about your athlete and then using some sort of visual assessment. Um, so I break it into two categories, right? Readiness to adapt, which is your internal load, HRV, DC potential wellness, mm -hmm. and then a readiness to train. Ideally, you have both of those pieces of information, right? So I have, all right, athletes' gas tank is full. They're ready to go. Readiness to train. All right, mentally, they're not into it. They're not moving the bar very well. Readiness to train is down. Um, that's a, a decision of, like, well, do you just motivate them to get the bar moving, or do you have them do something else? Um, what's that test? So when you say get the bar moving, what's a, what's a good, like, first test that wouldn't overtax? Um, like you do the wellness screen. You put a bar in hand and – yeah, so like I said, from a free standpoint, a lot, and this is kind of not, not, not the argument that when we rely on technology, some of, the, some of the arguments in the strength and conditioning community is that we lose our intuition as strength coaches to be able to visually assess quality mm -hmm. of movement and speed of movement. And I agree with that. Like when we constantly depend on uh, a Gymware or a Tendo or a Barca, any one of those technologies, we kind of get reluctant on that number on the screen. And we kind mm -hmm. of, lose. I totally agree with that. So I think in the very short term, it's getting the idea of the strength coach to understand what does a quality movement look like 
and then knowing, all right, does that speed look good? Does that form look good? Now, it's not going to be the most objective piece of information. It's ideally you'd be able to look at it and have the number to, uh, to kind of go with your intuition. But sure. I'm just talking like cheap uh, points of entry to start a fluid model, intuition, some, some sort of feedback from your athlete before they get into the gym that way. You kind of know what you're dealing with, and then you kind of make decisions from there. You I like that. Do, yeah, you could do like a vertical jump, but athletes will, um, even in fatigue states, they can alter movement mechanics to still get a high number if they only have to do it once. Mm, like right. a very motivated athlete, they'll still hit that number. It might change. That's why you have force plays to determine that. But like I said, mm. it's I think a very uh, entry level is wellness questionnaire and then understanding what that movement quality looks like, and then you make your decisions based off that. That's really interesting. And then you kind of based on the question earlier, uh, you're, you're encouraging a sort of um, coach self-awareness in that too. So it's, yeah. not, it's not like did so-and-so hit their broad jump or vertical jump number, or did the pendo hit the number that we were looking for? It's like, well, Brian doesn't usually run like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like this, he looks a little off today, say. Yeah. You know, that would um, – and, and our, our strength coach, uh, Coach Ed, um, Coach Edmund, who's our director of performance for football, does a phenomenal job. Like he can watch an athlete run and determine, all right, something is off in their mechanics. Mm-hmm. Something is not right. And then he will make decisions based off of movement efficiency and movement mechanics. It's really mm-hmm. interesting to watch. I can't see it. The dude can't. Like he, he does something phenomenal with running mechanics, but – uh, that's his, that's his fluid model, right? I'm going to watch these athletes as they go through their warmups and their warm up drills and be like, all right, um, something's off. I'm going to educate them, try to fix it. If something's still not right, then mm-hmm. he starts to use that as his, all right, I mean, we need to back off this athlete today. So I like that. Um, I want to move to something a little more human if that's okay. Yeah. Meaning, uh, okay. So you say you're training well, your, your nutrition, your sleep, all this stuff is going really well, but you're also a new father. Yeah. Uh, how, how have you managed all that and how's fatherhood? Yeah, no, it's, it's phenomenal. You know, it, it's definitely a, a transformational experience for us and our family, my wife and I, uh, we, we tried, uh, really hard. Uh, this is our first child and, um, went through some ups and downs through that process. Like a lot of people do that not, not many sure. people have to talk about. Um, but you know, finally blessed to have a child and, you know, we, the things that we did leading up, to, to Maddie uh, getting here was a lot of research, a lot of study, because I knew that, you know, what are, what are the most common things that parents, uh, new parents struggle with? And that's sleep, um, mm. that's arguments with spouses on how to handle certain situations. So we were very deliberate and intentional about, all right, this is going to be our strategy for um, how we're going to handle sleep. And we, we read a lot into sleep training and how we can get the baby to sleep longer than night, because I knew that if I wasn't sleeping well, yeah. Then my relationship might struggle, you know, at the end of the day, five o'clock when the baby's crying, we don't know what to do. And then we're arguing with each other. And so we did a great job, I feel like, of handling that by educating ourselves on the front end. Uh, Maddie's 12 weeks old now and she's sleeping about 11 hours through the night. So what we could be extremely lucky. Uh, I want to say that it's because we we're very deliberate uh, in identifying probably key areas that might be stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having solutions, but you know, like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And there was several right. nights where we were just like, she's crying. I can't get her to stop crying. What, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Like, you shouldn't have done it that way. Like there was definitely moments, but like you said, when you have those moments is my wife gets mad at me. It's like, all right, what do we learn from this experience? Right. Right. 
you know, like, all right, we didn't do this or we didn't do that. Let's try to do something else different next time. We're just, we're always in a process of trying to like no judgments. Like we don't know what we're doing. Right. We're, we're right. Um, and so, you know, every day is a learning experience with her and it's been phenomenal, but you know, that, that was one thing that I was talking about with the coronavirus is, you, you know, I've been able to spend so much time with her that I wouldn't have been able to do uh, being in college athletics. And it's been a real blessing. Uh, and so you can take the mindset, oh, you know, I can't go out with my friends or I can't do this. And there's so much. But for me, I view it as a positive being able to spend more time with her and, and being able to, to be with my wife a little bit more than I normally would. Well, it's all perspective, of course. Yeah. Right. Because um, I think we mentioned this last night. We're no longer in the meetings that we have uh, allowing people to use the term. Uh, it's not it's not perfect. This mm -hmm. time and place. Um it's just such an absurd idea to even entertain in the midst of a multi-week global pandemic quarantine that something could even look vaguely reminiscent of perfect in that way. Uh, but, but like what's perfect for now and for you, it's like really, you can dig into fatherhood in a way that you would not have been able to otherwise. That's pretty, exactly. that's a gift in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so like I said, it's your perspective, right? Even let's just say fatherhood aside, training, like, I'm spending yeah. more time on mobility, which I've negated in the past. Uh, sure. I've done more cardiovascular fitness because I can get out and run, which I've negated in the past. And I'm starting to see the, the, the dividends of those things, like my, my movements feel better. And when I'm actually do push weight, my cardiovascular fitness has increased. Um, so it's, you can view this as a negative, like, oh, I don't have my barbell. I don't have weights. I'm just not going to lift because there's no point. There's things that we can do mm -hmm. uh, to kind of keep getting better. And that might be just a, addressing a, a need. Uh, that we've been kind of putting off for a long period of time, but, but absolutely. Yeah. The, the whole, you know, opportunity to, to spend time with my wife and, and, and Maddie had been phenomenal. And honestly, you, when I wake up in the morning, it's um, you know, I have a, a series of things that I do from, I start with meditation, write down something I'm grateful for, for gratitude. And then that's always at the top of my list is like, yeah, we're in a really tough time, but man, I get to spend a lot of time with my daughter and that's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and it really just kind of helps frame my day uh, in that positive light. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't met this child yet, but she's making me feel good just hearing you talk about it. Like, <laughs> like that's, uh, yeah, it, how, how could it not? Um, and, I, and I really hope people are tuning into that very idea. You don't have to have a, a new baby to, to tap into the concept, which is like you start your day uh, in a positive mindset, then every subsequent interaction you have will, will be influenced by that somehow right you yeah. start every day saying oh shoot we can't go to the movies again today yeah. uh you know then, then that would color it as well yeah the gratitude is really like if you stop and think about it yeah i can't go to the movies or i can't do this but i got a roof over my head and yep. i've got food and i've got like i've got the basic necessities um and i still have family around and i you know we're healthy and you could go on a list and list and list of things you're grateful for and you realize like you know how lucky we really are mm -hmm. then this pandemic doesn't really seem to be that bad but we get in this kind of um we take things for granted a lot mm -hmm. uh, you know some of the luxuries that we have in this country and then now we're starting to realize like maybe we need to be grateful for some of the things that we still have that other people in this world don't so how are you going to teach that to maddie you know we we haven't talked about that specific piece yet. We, we just mastered sleep, but uh, that'll probably be kind of like those core values that we talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's hard 
you know, for children because they, they grow up in their environment and they're going to get used to it. And, and luckily, like we, we both have professions that we do very well. Um, but we always want to instill something in Maddie, like, you know, you need to have a working mindset. Uh, nothing in this world is, is free. Um, and to be grateful for the things that we do have. Um, but you know, that's going to be a challenge for us because I've never, you know, obviously never raised a child and she's going to be influenced by so many different things and her mindset and is going to develop in so many different ways. But you know, it's, it's just this chronic message that we hope to kind of instill in her and you know, who knows what who knows what will happen. It's, it's crazy. I always tell people is the, the thing that I was scared most about having a child was every day their brain creates a new connection, right? Mm-hmm. So every environment or every situation that we put her in, she's potentially learning something new. And the, what scares me is that, is that a positive connection? Mm-hmm. Is that a negative thing? Like, or what are we doing? What environments are we putting her in or what situations, what teaching opportunities are we missing as she gets older and her brain starts mm-hmm. to develop? So like when something bad happens, like, Hey, what can we learn from this and trying to create that environment for, her. and there's just, you know, when you send them off to school, that's scary because you can't control that environment. What is right. she learning at school? um that she's going to bring home that um could influence and shape their behavior so that's that's kind of the scary thing when you when you start thinking about kids but uh, at the end of the day you just have a, a strategy and plan in place and you put it yeah put it in place and evolve do you think i wonder you maybe do, do you think more people will homeschool at the back end of this experience uh <laughs> I, I don't know. I think people are starting to realize how grateful they are for our teachers in America. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not sure. That's a good question. You know, my, my mother-in-law is a teacher. Um, and I, and I see the good things that she does. And I do think that our teachers are undervalued here in the country, mm-hmm. uh, for what they do and actually provide for our kids. Um, I can't imagine, you know, parents wanting to, to homeschool more necessarily when we have such a great, I feel like we have a great school system in place um, that are help educating. So um, I don't know. We'll see. It'll be interesting. We'll find out. I, I, uh, and it just, I don't mean to go down that road too fully, but uh, you mentioned like the fact that you can't control the variables when they're, you know, if you, once you send her off. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think they develop so much, like if you did homeschool, but are they getting that human interaction with other kids and to be able to uh, relate to another child and be able to handle someone that does have a different opinion than them? Because most likely our opinions are going to align because we're raising her. But what if they run into a kid that doesn't disagree or disagrees with them on something? How do they handle that situation? Totally. Yeah. And so one of the books that John Wellborn had recommended that I read a while ago is like the coddling of the American mind. Yeah, yeah. Just talking about how, you know, kids these days, because parents have sheltered them, like mm-hmm. they've removed all that stress uh, from the child. They don't know how to, like when they get to 18, 19 years old, they can't handle when someone does has a different opinion than them because the parents have always shielded them from it. That's right. So now we don't know how to handle that. You know, someone might have a different viewpoint than us. It's not a threat. You know, it's not something that's going to make us feel bad, but it's just something that happens in life. Someone's going to disagree with you always. I, I totally, and, and it's got, I think you're right. I think you're going to have the developing mind will have to wrestle with those contrary perspectives. It can't just be mom and dad telling you to go to bed when you don't want to go to bed. It's got to yeah. be actual real world dilemmas of like, no, this is how we do things in my house. And this is how we uh, practice religion. And this is how we X, Y, Z. Like those are, you gotta, you gotta expose people to those discussions. Yeah. No, and like I said, you the best we can do right now is just read and learn. Like I, I 
I'm learning more about um, the book that I'm reading. Hold on, let me get the title for you that I really like. Um, so I think it's called like the whole brain child. Yeah. What is, uh, but really kind of dives into the neurophysiology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole brain child. Do you know who the author is? It is. Oh, just had it. Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Mm-hmm. Authors of the yes brain. So one of, um, it's called the whole brain child, 12 revolutionary strategies to nurture your child's developing mind. So it really kind of dives into, you know, gives real life examples of a, of a child that might experience something and then what their brain's actually doing their left uh, hemisphere, the right hemisphere, logic, emotion, how you kind of bring those two together Hmm. um, and how you make, you know, some things that might upset a child, a learning experience, like uh, what's kind of going on in their brain because as adults, we think that they should be able to handle some of these very emotional uh, situations or traumatic experiences, but their brain hasn't developed to handle those things. Right. So it puts it in the framework of what is actually going through your child's mind right now in these type of situations. And it helps me understand like it, normally where I might get frustrated or mad that the child is not doing something. It's because they just haven't developed that structure or developed that neural connection. And it's our job as parents to take those environments, make the right neural connection to say, Hey, this is a bad experience, but this is how you can handle and understand the emotion that you feel and like you kind of help them learn from that. So like I said, I think for me, it's recognizing when I can create a learning experience for Maddie and help shape her behavior uh, from that. It's such a mindful approach. Yeah. You know, when you, when you talk about it in the way that you just talked about it, it there's like such a, there's a humility uh, and there's like a curiosity and there's just, you have to keep in mind that this is not, this is not like a, a colleague of mine or a work friend. This is right. These skills have not yet been onboarded. Like, let me be thoughtful about how uh, I'm being patient with this. I, I just think it's such a, a thoughtful approach. Uh, yeah. We'll see how it plays out. So, we, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Right. We got it. We have to listen to the feedback. The data will, yeah. will tell the story ultimately. Exactly. Um, uh, can you give us, when you say, I, I want some um, tangible strategies for people who are, who are, home alone at the, not home alone but quarantined at the moment um when you say first first and foremost when you say meditation like what's what does your practice look like so i, I was never skilled in meditation. i can't just go out and sit on my patio and, and go i, I can kind of do it but you know i've always been a big fan of headspace uh and okay. i think actually right now they've opened their platform for either very 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 cheap or no cost uh during mm-hmm. the pandemic um, it's guided meditation. It kind of walks you through one in the very early parts and the basics of it. It kind of explains the science behind meditation and understand why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is what they, the strength of headspace is it, it makes it more real. Like, Hey, you're not going to be very good at this. Your mm-hmm. mind is going to wander and it's okay. Yeah. Like just, they give you strategies when your mind does wander to kind of help bring you back in and kind of help you keep you engaged. And I think their platform is really good because now when I first did it, they just had their basic packs, but they have all sorts of packs like on self-esteem or stress, Mm -hmm. anxiety or work productivity. They have all these different ways to kind of make meditation a little bit more Mm -hmm. user-friendly. So like I said, I've been using Headspace for the last two or three years and and I can see it. So in my heart rate variability, when I stop or reduce my meditation practice, my HRV starts to kind of trend a little bit down. Really? Uh, which means my body, when I don't meditate, my body has a harder time of handling external stresses. 
it's huh. crazy because we don't think about it on the conscious level. But when I start meditating again, you see that HRV start to creep back up. Right. Um, so you, in the science of it alone, so I recommend people have iPhones uh, and maybe have an iWatch. Your iWatch collects HRV without you knowing it. Really? Um, yeah. So uh, if you go to your health app, it'll collect it. Now, it'll collect it at kind of random times. Uh, so sometimes when I'm working out, it collects it. So my HRV is really low. But on average, you can start to see that trend going up. But uh, it collects a lot of things. I just know it collects how many how many meditation minutes I have, so I can track how many times I meditated in March mm -hmm. and April, and I can look at my HRV and start to see, hey, I'm actually getting a little bit higher, a little bit higher, and I'm handling stress a lot better. It also correlates with what I'm seeing in the weight room as well. The numbers are going up. So um, long-winded question or long-winded answer for I like Headspace and yeah, I like meditation. That's kind of my practice. Uh, like I said, every morning I, I have a morning startup routine. Um, that I try to stick to even in a quarantine time they talk about the importance of routines and maintaining routine so for me it's still trying to get up every morning at five o'clock in the morning uh, don't let anyone steal your 5 a.m. it's the most quiet peaceful time because there's not a lot going on I go out on my patio if it's warm enough because um, I like to hear the birds and I like to hear everything going on outside and get away from like the structure of my house um, go through meditation uh, active uh, gratefulness and then a little bit of Bible study and that kind of helps frame my day uh, so no matter what happens the rest of the day I can always anchor back to that morning like yeah uh, I got I have a disagreement with a coworker on how we should handle X but you know what that's a difference of opinion um, I'm not gonna let it ruin my day like I'm still gratitude for the, the things that I have you know kind of an example of that totally. when things don't go as planned during the day I'll always have that to anchor back to I think it's a great idea. Um, I like that term. Don't let anyone steal your 5 a.m. Yeah, I, I got that from, uh, I, he's our direct, well, now he's uh, one of our senior associate ADs for our student-athlete experience, but he was an Apache helicopter pilot. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he, uh, so um, great guy with our leadership development, but he, that was one thing he always said, don't let anyone steal your 5 a.m. So yeah. I try to stick to that and get up at 5 no matter what's going on, um, and that's, that's just kind of my time. So, what time do you go to bed to get up at five? Uh, usually I start trying to wind. So I have an evening shutdown routine kind of thing. So a lot of that that's changed now with Maddie is because she fits a lot of that. Um, and we're trying to get her in bed around that 839 window now that she's sleeping longer. And then so mm -hmm. like it's about nine-ish that I'm trying to get into bed and shut down completely at 930. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting, you know, seven and a half to eight hours of sleep every night. And then... I'm a quantified self, so I track my sleep and, you know, yeah. um, and making sure and I get feedback in the morning how I slept and it's always, oh, I didn't sleep as well last night or my heart rate went up. Like, what are the things that kind of could have affected that? But yeah. Mm, I, I, I totally agree. I, um, I realized, I don't know when it was, I had an epiphany in the last five years, I would say, or I don't know when the day was, but I realized what a morning person I was. Mm -hmm. It just, I love the mornings. Yeah. I also realized that the reason I hadn't realized it before was because I didn't have a good enough go to bed routine. Oh, uh, yeah. Nobody's a morning person if you go to bed at midnight or 1 a.m. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, funny because my wife is not a morning person. So it's, it's a, <laughs> it's really? kind of, conscious. yeah, she's kind of a night owl. Um, but it, it works for us because when I get up in the morning, I'm cheerful and happy and she's kind of, uh, kind of right. helps bring her up a little bit. So that's <laughs> it, it, interesting because everything we've been talking about, doesn't, doesn't that too sort of apply? This mindset could be applied to that, right? Like, uh, 
there's no judgment. It's not good or bad to be a morning, a night owl or an early bird or whatever. It doesn't, yep. it doesn't matter. But, but yep. tuning into it seems like it would. Understanding yep. that and then figuring out the dynamics between how those things will interplay, that, that, uh, that seems worthwhile. Yeah. And that's the thing is that you hear all these optimal strategies, but optimal strategies are specific to the individual. You can't put yourself into a box uh, and right. say, oh, this is the way I have to do it because that's most optimal. So right. it's optimal to train in you know, the evening because testosterone availability, maybe, but I don't sleep well if I train in the evening. I like to mm -hmm. train in the morning or I like to train at noon. And mm -hmm. so you know, sometimes we can, we can throw science to the side a little bit and understand that the higher level of what works for me trumps everything. Yeah. And that's how I'm made up. That's just my mindset. And so instead of um, attacking myself or bringing myself down because I can't do these certain things that somebody told me was optimal mm -hmm. uh, is just a negative mindset to have. I like that a lot. That, uh, all right, I've got, um, I think you're exactly right. I got a couple quick questions. I, I, I could talk all day because I really like this line of thinking. Uh, but the, 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 I guess some of the final questions, we have some people who are training for a powerlifting meet. And then we talked about this a little bit. Um, that term, I, I'm constantly navigating this space because uh, I'm, I'm going to compete in, in it as well. And I know that I will not hit my all-time best numbers given the current situation. I don't have a barbell on hand right now. But I'm pretty comfortable with it because one of the things yep. that we're trying to do is reframe the idea of what powerlifting is. Uh, not necessarily powerlifting with a capital P, putting your numbers on the board at West Side. Although I said this before, I have no problem with that. I think the guys who yep. can train at that sort of elite level, that's fantastic. Yep. What I and we are most interested in uh, at this point, though, is uh, essentially trying to light a light at the end of this tunnel, this strange tunnel and not lose power over this time, not lose our competitive edge and these sorts of things. So uh, I'm really excited to, it, it, I, I, we've simplified the idea of what a powerlifting meet looks like, and it is thoughtful practice, max effort. Yep. And, and it, it's as simple as that. And it's not, it's not a hammering weights world record, it's thoughtful practice, best effort. So for, for me or for someone else who might wanna do this, what are some ways that you would uh, try to keep power alive during this time yeah so we're dealing with the same thing uh with some of our student athletes you know we're not allowed to have a barbell we're not allowed to have them share medicine balls we're, we're, we're very confined in what the athlete can do um you know there's so many methods to maintain power um you, you know you had to adopt a mindset of like all right this isn't optimal right optimal is gone perfect's gone Right. Um, we need to try and find ways to stimulate our system similar to was if we had a barbell in our hand, that could be as something as we're going to find something, uh, you know, you know, power athlete uses cinder blocks and mm -hmm. they find all sorts of things around the house to get the body moving, to generate and contract as much as we can, as fast as we can rate of force development. Um, like you said, you were doing hill sprints the other day. It's another mm -hmm. excellent way to attack the central nervous system to maintain power but you're exactly right. Whatever that we're going to do, we're going to have a plan in place. So thoughtful practice. So I'm going to write out, this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to attack it as best as I can. I know that it's not a barbell, but even if it's a 20 pound object, I don't even call it a medicine ball. And I'm going to do med ball overhead throws, but I'm going to push that ball as far and as fast as I can. Mm -hmm. And we, we know through science that as long as we're getting that kind of intensity, that rate of force development, those motor units contracting, 
that we can maintain a good amount of what we've developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, also with the mindset of a no judgment free. So if, if we do have this powerlifting meet and we don't hit a PR, that's right. okay. Right. right. But it's a lot better than doing nothing. Uh, I think a right. lot of people will get in the mindset of, oh, if I can't, you know, power lift, then I'm uh, just not going to do anything. Right. Because it's right. not going to matter. But as, as long as we're moving the ball forward with whatever that we have, uh, you're going to get benefit from it. So it's, it's like I said, it's about maintaining intensity of whatever you decide to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and know that it's not going to be optimal or perfect, but we're going to, we're going to contract those muscles as fast and as hard as we can with whatever objects that we have. Right. And that will offset, uh, a lot of these training, um, you know, atrophies and a lot of this training, um, reduction. So right. like you said, thoughtful praxis, maximal intensity, as long as you can do that. And you know, in the back of your head, like I'm doing everything that I can possibly do. Mm-hmm. then I'm okay with whatever happens at the end of this. So, and then at the end of the day, it's like, what other limiting factors have I been negating in my, in my mm-hmm. training regimen? For me, it's been mobility. Um, mm-hmm. I can do mobility at home with anything. So and I'm starting to see the benefits like pain is starting to go down. Uh, joint mobility is starting to go up. Like things that, that there's, there's blessings in everything, every situation. And you just yeah. have to kind of anchor yourself to those. Yeah, no doubt. I, I appreciate that perspective so much. It, that's right. It's this combination of giving everything you've got thoughtful process, high intensity. Um, and like alongside this, this mindset of I'm going to give it all I've got, but for, you know, sort of forgive myself on the back end if I don't hit an all time best. <clears throat> one of my, uh, one of the guys in the project said this the other day, I thought it was really sort of brilliant. He was like, uh, he, he said two things that, that I thought were really cool. One of them was, um, you know, for the people who are concerned about their numbers, you know, because in power, like that's what you're sort of judged on. So say you're, you're, you got a 300 pound bench and you hit 290 instead, it, it's okay. Um, but, he, but he said, instead of worrying about that, maybe we should recognize that, um, you know, just because the barbell went away temporarily, um, the, the world is still full of weights. Gravity has gone nowhere. You know, yeah. so like, like you mentioned, the power athlete guys that pick up heavy stuff, move it fast. That's a solid way to keep this thing rolling. That was really cool. And, and the other thing he said was, um, he, he goes, I guarantee, I don't know if anyone will break a world record in this competition, but I guarantee there will be a lot of records broken. Those records are best total in a powerlifting meet post pandemic. And like, when you think about it in that way, it's like, yeah, I guess that's right. Um, yeah. You know, not honestly, honestly, I think it's a good opportunity because I don't think people deload. Uh, it's probably yeah. this opportunity is a, it's going to be an extended deload, but you know, this might be the opportunity to start to recover and repair things that have been kind of nagging for a long period of time. And what you'll see is coming out of this, you, you know, six months later, you might be hitting numbers that you never dreamed of. I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right, man. I, I, I we talked uh, to a couple, um, <clears throat> We're hoping to have a couple Power Five football programs in on this event, which will be awesome. Yeah, and those those programs are seeing this sort of as like an arms race. Yeah. you know, it, uh, from a nine month off season, we cannot give up a month and a half. Yeah, what can we do over this time? Can we keep our guys competitive? Can we do all this stuff? Dude, I, I did. Uh, I was doing single leg squats the other day on air, and I kind of forgot that I even knew how to do them because mm-hmm. you know, because you get you get a barbell in hand and you just do the standard. Move. Yeah. But if you, if you work on it, I think I mentioned this, um, a lot of unilateral stuff. I feel like I've been cleaning things up over the past couple of weeks that I just never would have. Yeah. Situation not presented itself. 
Yeah, you're, you're going to start to see a lot of people realizing that, um, one, there's multiple ways to get to the same destination. Yep. Two, um, maybe training more, maybe more is not better. And yeah. then three, uh, it really will get, I think, people to understand the importance of recovery, uh, mobility, self-restoration, um, because we're kind of forced into that box. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Uh, I think you're totally right. Okay. Well, I hear Maddie calling you in the background, so I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to keep you all day, but, uh, so what would your advice uh, Two, final question? One, what kind of coffee? What's that? What kind of coffee are you drinking out there? Uh, well right now it was just, uh, something I made at home because I couldn't get to the shop, uh, in time this morning to go something, but typically I'll grab cold brew, uh, is my summer, summer drink. Um, there's a local place called a cup of Commonwealth. It does a lot of good stuff for, uh, the community that we really like. Um, but yeah, for, for this one, it's just a little home concoction I made with, uh, a little, cause I'm getting ready to, like I said, it's, it's close to workout time. So I, yeah. I'm eating this caffeine with a little uh, additive stuff with some creatine and whatnot, uh, in wow. there to kind of help, uh, get me through this workout. You have creatine in your coffee right now? Yeah, because sometimes, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's unflavored. So, you know, it mixes fairly well and it doesn't bog down the taste of it. And yeah, so, you know, I love it. Aren't those, aren't those the two most studied supplements in the world? Caffeine and creatine. There's that's nothing it. fancy about these pre-workouts. It's at the end of the day, that's their base ingredient. Um, so absolutely. Uh, I got a request. There's some more questions coming in. Um, I said, it says, can Chris post the name of the book you were referring to in your Instagram story? Uh, and I'm and I'm not sure if it was coddling of the American mind or whole brain child. You mentioned a couple of those. If you think yeah. of it, that's a request from one of the people watching. So, okay, absolutely, yeah. So we we I think we talked about three books: a whole brain child, uh, thinking fast and slow, and then yeah. um, coddling and, the American mind. And and we got to uh, we got to get you um, how emotions are made too. That's Lisa Feldman Barrett. Okay, absolutely. Uh, and then the final bit: self talk for this time. You've mentioned gratitude a lot. What's your advice for, um, for self-talk? And, I'm, and, and we're, we're constantly pushing people to consider this idea more. Um, literally, what is the language inside your head? Uh, because, you know, we, we think about actually a Professor Ellen Langer, if you ever want to look her up. Man, I'm going to send you that too. Ellen Langer and Lisa Feldman Barrett. She talks about how the way that you name things, how dramatic an effect, that, like, what a dramatic effect. And think about your interaction with people. If the same person, Brian is uh, so great, high energy guy, or really annoying. What, however you name Brian in your mind, the next time Brian comes into the room, you know whatever he does, whatever is the first word out of his mouth, it's going to be influenced by the way that you name uh, Brian's behavior or, or how you perceive it. So, uh, what does your self talk look like? Uh, I, I would say in general, um, and has it changed through this time? Um. You know, honestly, so something I struggled with a long, not a long time ago, is like when, when you come into this uh, sporting environment, um, especially with some of the thoughts that these new school thoughts, you're going to run into a lot of people that disagree with you. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled uh, when someone didn't agree uh, with me in terms of like maybe introducing technology or stress and how it affects training or MegaWave or any, any concept along those lines. They're fairly new uh, thoughts. And I really struggled with that instead. Uh, and I would get really frustrated. And so every time I saw that person or, or any time, then I started like globally just started labeling all strength coaches as 
you know, old school don't understand. And so I started to put myself in their shoes mm -hmm. uh, and started, and it really kind of put me in the practice of any time there was a conflict. It's like, all right, where is this person coming from? Um, and, and it forced me to kind of, to think to myself, all right, I understand now uh, maybe some of their hesitations of implementing this, or I understand because of their experience of 30 years, this is how they've done it. Mm -hmm. um, and it really, every interaction now that I have with another person, especially one that doesn't dis or doesn't agree with me, um, I always kind of putting myself in their shoes. Uh, instead of just kind of labeling, oh, they don't understand me, or they're never going to get their old school, or and it's really helped kind of shame because what in, at the end of the day I kept getting frustrated. Mm -hmm. and that frustration led to me coming home and not being happy, which ended up you know there's a downstream effect uh, from sure. that. So you know that led into some of my morning meditations and my gratitudes and like you know there's going to be people that disagree with me in the world and I'm gratitude for this is what I have, mm -hmm. um, and then that self-talk of just trying to always um, when I interact with someone is, is trying to have an open mindset and, and not getting frustrated if they don't necessarily agree. Like, you know, like it's easy for us to talk because we kind of uh, have very similar uh, wavelengths and, and thought processes, but it's not, it's not common. I, I think in this community uh, with strength coaches, this is kind of a new thought process. It's always been this old school grinded out. Um, and so for me, it's just been a matter of um, view it from their perspective and then try to reframe my conversation to kind of help not 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 attack their view, but kind of compliment their view. Like you're kind of meeting <laughs> yeah. them where they're at. Um, and so yes. like for me, that's been my biggest self-talk over the last four. And I've, I've seen a massive benefit of like when I come home, I'm happy. Um, huh. I'm not frustrated. I'm not, you know, um, but yeah, that's, that's been kind of my, my mantra, you know, these past six to eight weeks, uh, aside from this pandemic. Um, and, you know, the best thing about the pandemic is it's forced us all to kind of come together. Like this is not some, this is not normal. This is not perfect. And we have to rely on everybody's expertise to help kind of get through this and our plan right. of how we're going to transition athletes back to the university, how we're going to take care of them when they get back on campus. And so, uh, it's really forced. It's kind of like our governor in Kentucky always says, we're not, there's no Republicans. There's no Democrats. We're all Americans right now. That's right. Um, all fighting the coronavirus. But, um, it, it's the same thing in the weight room. You're not a strength coach. I'm not a sports scientist. You're not a nutritionist. We're all just specialists, uh, in our own little area, trying to make sure our athletes get back on, uh, the right track. You're totally right. You're totally right. And, and it is, it's so unique because it's not something that you have to deal with down in Lexington or we have to deal with in Chicago. It, it's like, we're all dealing with this. What a unifying thing this could be. Um, I like that a lot. So if, if you've been doing this, and maybe this is not uh, an answerable question, but say you find yourself in one of those frustrating conversations and you know it's time to practice empathy or perspective taking or any of these strategies, uh, is there sort of a cue you give yourself? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Like a verbal cue? Yeah, so, so for me, like you said, self-awareness, right, is huge. And so a lot of times I can recognize before I go into those conversations, the potential conflicts that may occur. Uh, and so when they do, or if they do occur, then I've already been prepared for myself and I kind of have a plan. But a lot of times it's just catching myself with those negative thoughts. So the meditation pack that I'm on right now, it's a strategy called noting. 
Uh, when those thoughts come into my head that are potentially negative, because a lot of times we're enemies of our own mind. We formulate these extreme situations that aren't necessarily the truth and they're far from it. Like we create negative environments. Uh, and so what I've been able to do is when that thought pops into my head immediately, it's you note it as a thought and then you kind of dismiss it and then you kind of get back on your train of thought. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, cause a lot of times like my mental state, like if I'm talking to someone, I'm making assumptions, that, oh, they, they don't agree with me or they're, they're basically going to try to undermine me or they're going to do this. And this is, I'm basically trying to think for them. Mm-hmm. And, and so it creates this negative mindset when you really don't know. Um, and, and so when those thoughts kind of come into my head, when my self chatter starts happening, which happens a lot, sure. uh, it's, oh, note it, feel it, dismiss it. Uh, and then kind of get back to it. So do you say, do you literally say like noted? You, you yeah, like, so, yeah. So the strategy is to treat it kind of like with a soft feather. It's just like, all right, just kind of brush it across and out of your mindset. So don't just be like, he says, don't make it like whack-a-mole, like try to knock down these negative thoughts. I only place sure. it. Like, all right, accept it. It's a thought. Let it come in, let it leave. Um, and just throughout the day, I just try to kind of catch myself um, in those periods where I, I have negative self chatter. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, negative thought. That's okay. I don't judge it. Uh, like you said, no judgment, and you just let it pass. Uh, and oftentimes, I'll come back to it later. And be like you know, I really, I thought of it this way initially, and this is not really the case. And you know, it, it, it leads to better, more empathetic conversations when you have conversations with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it all comes back to communication, <clears throat> whether it's between your ears. Uh, or between people, um, it, it's language, it's communication, all influenced by that bedrock tier just below it. And yeah, and like, like I said, I think we agree on a lot, and that's refreshing. Not that yeah. it would be bad to have, to have disagreed. I'm sure there are, you know, those are valuable conversations as well. But I am really um, encouraged by your approach. Uh, I think Kentucky is uh, probably in a good, very good spot having people and thinkers like you on hand. So uh, I sure hope they recognize it and. Uh, I'm just very grateful that you spent some time with us this morning, man. Absolutely. It's been great. Like I said, it's, it's good to have conversation with people with like minds, but uh, sometimes it's even more rewarding when you have disagreements as well. So you can talk through it, but. Uh, well, let's see. What if we come up with something to disagree about and then, and then we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back on and show people how to navigate that sort of discussion. Absolutely. Let's, let's, start, <laughs> let's start nailing it out. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them is up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E print, P-R-I-N-T dot com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.